Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. At that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to him and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. You have not your mind set on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. How does Simon become Peter? How does Simon, this ordinary, limited, sinful man, become Peter, uh, an instrument through whom Jesus will change the world? We saw a few weeks ago as we were walking through this series on Matthew 16 that it begins, this transformation from Simon into Peter begins with Simon's confession of who Jesus is. Verse 16 of chapter 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But then last week we saw it's not just this process begins with Simon's confession about who Jesus is. Next, Jesus will confess something about who Simon is. And you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against you. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I mean, what's incredible now, this next moment we just read is that immediately following, the very next thing that happens after this incredible confession from Jesus about who Simon is, the rock, the keys, hell cannot withstand this. The next thing that happens is Peter epically failing. I mean, this is an absolute epic failure. Jesus ends up scolding him with a phrase that should chill us to the core. Get behind me, Satan. But here's what's amazing. is As we look at the story of Simon becoming Peter, as we recognize that this is not just about Simon Peter, a particular man in a particular place, but rather this story is for us as believers, that we are all very Simon-like. And yet in God's grace, He's making us into Peters. As we look at the story today, we will see that in this epic failure, Jesus is actually teaching Simon something he desperately needs to know. And here's what he's teaching him. Simon, Peter, you need to learn how to see yourself going forward. You you need to know how to regard yourself, how to think of yourself going forward. Because here's what's happened. God has taken this ordinary, broken mortal and has poured into him the power and the promise of God. And if Simon doesn't figure out how to see himself going forward, he is going to be a nightmare to the people around him. I mean, isn't this true? We see this in the world. We see ordinary people who get filled up with 
power, prestige, celebrity, money, whatever it may be. And if they don't know how to actually work through how they see themselves, they become embarrassing nightmares to those around them, don't they? Think of Muhammad Ali, probably the greatest boxer in history. There's this true story where Muhammad Ali gets onto an aircraft. He was known for his ego, right? Got onto the airplane, sat down, and the stewardess comes up to him and says, you know, Mr. Ali, you need to put your seatbelt on before the captain can take off. To which Ali responds with a loud voice so the whole plane hears him, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the stewardess replies, Superman don't need no airplane. (laughs) How does a person who has been filled with the power and the promise of God not end up becoming a nightmare to people around them? Well, this story tells us. See, this epic failure teaches Peter how to regard himself. And Jesus is using this moment to teach Peter three things about himself. He's showing Peter in this epic failure, Simon, yes, you're Peter. Yes, you're the rock. That transformation has happened. But guess what, Peter? You're still a bonehead. That's, that's, the, first, that's the first point. He's a bonehead. He's boneheaded. He, he's not getting it right. He's making mistakes. But not only is Jesus saying that he's a bonehead, Jesus is saying, you are beastly too. You are beastly. There's something not just wrong in your thinking, but there's something wrong in your heart. You are still sinful. There's still something very wicked in you, Peter. But thanks be to God, Jesus in this moment is not just saying you're a bonehead and you're beastly, but Jesus is saying you're beloved. You're beloved. So first, Peter is boneheaded. I love that term, bonehead. My my family can tell you I use it a lot, um, sometimes of myself. The thing I like about this word is you have no um, mystery about what you're trying to say when you call someone a bonehead. Like there's no interpretive mechanism required. Like a bonehead, thick skull, there's not much going on, right? Thick in the head, bonehead. Peter's a bonehead, And if we can hear it, we're all boneheads sometimes as well. Verse 23, what does Jesus say to Simon Peter? He says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. See, this this question of are are you setting your mind on godly things or on manly things? Well, the answer is you're setting them on manly or mortal things. See, the point what Jesus is making here in one sense is Peter recognized you're mortal and therefore you're limited. And let's be blunt, Peter, you're getting this one wrong. You're just, you're just not getting this right. You're wrong. Because what's happened is in verse 21, Jesus has just told his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem, that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die and be raised. Now it's understandable for them to misunderstand this. Because this concept of a a Christ, a Messiah, the anointed king who suffers and dies is supposedly an oxymoron in their mind. Isn't he coming to solve suffering? Isn't he coming to beat back the enemies? Not die. So there's, there's understandable, it's understandable that Peter doesn't quite get it, but as many of us are guilty, 
Though he doesn't get it, he speaks anyway, right? We're all guilty of that at times, right? We don't quite get it, but we, we, we shoot off our mouths. It's like Mark Twain, who famously said, you know, it's better to stay silent and be thought a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt. Right? So Peter speaks in verse 22. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Can you imagine Peter looking back later in life at that statement? that makes it into Matthew's gospel, makes it into Mark's gospel as well, by the way, which was probably the recording of Peter's preaching. Peter included this story. Imagine him looking back on that moment going, man, Jesus said he was gonna go suffer and die and be raised. And I said, it ain't ever gonna happen, Jesus. Bonehead, got it wrong. He just couldn't see it. And the difficulty though is that Peter doesn't know he's wrong. Right? Isn't that true for most of us? We don't know what we don't know. We're limited. And, and yet so often, isn't it true that we work so desperately hard to make ourselves and make those around us and maybe even at times try to make God feel that we really are right. I know what's going on. I, I see the way the world should be. I've got it right. right? We work so hard to be right. We think we're so smart. And yet, at times we're boneheads. And Peter needs to know this. We do not always get it right. In fact, we often get it wrong. It's like the story of the boy that goes into the barber shop. And, and the barber turns to his customer and says, you know, whispers to him, he says, this is the dumbest kid in the world. I'm going to prove it to you. And so the barber walks up to the kid. In one hand, he's got a dollar bill. And in the other hand, he's got two quarters. And he says, which would you like? And the kid takes the two quarters and walks out of the store. And, and, and then the barber turns to his customer and says, see, he, he does this every day. I can prove that he's an absolute idiot. Well, later, the customer sees the boy coming out of the ice cream parlor. And he says, son, why did you take the quarters instead of the dollar bill? And the boy licking his newly purchased ice cream cone said, because the day I take the dollar is the day the game is over. <laughs> See, we think we're so right. And we ask the people who live with us, who know us the best, how often are we struggling to make sure that we're right? Peter, you're a rock. You've been transformed, but you need to recognize this about yourself. You're going to get it wrong. You're still limited. You're still at times going to be a bonehead, especially when it comes to things of God. See, Isaiah 55, the Lord says this. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Yes, Simon, you've become Peter, but you need to remember that you're still going to be a bonehead. Let that shape the way you see yourself. But not only is he a bonehead in this epic moment, Jesus is also showing Peter that he's beastly. See, verse 23 says, again, Jesus says, you're not setting your mind on things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. It doesn't just mean that he's got his mind messed up, that he's not seeing it. He's wrong, boneheaded, but not 
Setting your mind on the things of God means also your desires are wrong. Your heart's not right. There's something wrong in you, Peter. It's not just ignorance. It's not just boneheadedness. This is sin. This is desire. This is personal agenda. This is beastliness that is causing you to do this. Isn't it interesting in verse 22? Look at the word that Matthew uses. And and, and Mark uses it as well. He says, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Rebuke him. See, it's not just that he disagreed with Jesus. He rebuked him. It's, It's a lecture. It's a scolding. Or as Bishop Tom Wright says, Peter began to tell him off. That's the weight of the translation. That's the word. It's also, just be clear, not out of concern that Peter just has for Jesus. Oh, you know, Jesus, I'm concerned about you and your person. I mean, you're going to get suffer. You're suffering and you're going to get killed apparently. I mean, he's, he's not actually that worried about Jesus, it seems. See, Peter's actually more concerned about himself. Peter's worry, his beastliness, his sinful desire is, what is this going to do to me? I mean, the challenge is, that Jesus had said just a few chapters earlier, prophetically in Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, he said about the relationship between disciples and teachers. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? In other words, as Dale Bruner says, Jesus, your suffering, Bruner says, this is what Peter's saying, Jesus, your suffering is going to make my new position in the church rather unpleasant. Or, more provocatively, I didn't become Pope for this. Now, Peter's not the Pope. If there is any place in scripture, and there's several, but if there's any place in scripture that's clearer on this, it is here that Peter is no pope, that the bishop of Rome is in no position of superiority or infallibility. Look at Peter. The first word out of his mouth is absolute epic failure. How can we believe in the doctrine of infallibility when we look at the scriptures? When Monica was finished high school, she spent a gap year in Rome, well, around the world. She was traveling with a group called Up With People, performance group and did community service and goodwill ambassadors going around the world. And for a portion, they were in Rome. And while they were in Rome, they were performing for Pope John Paul II. And true story, Monica is dropped off at the city bus, gets on the city bus from her host family, and it turns out she's on the wrong bus. It's going like the opposite direction from where she needs to go. And she finally figures this out and realizes that she's not going to get to St. Peter's. And so she goes to the driver and she says, she shows him the piece of paper that shows what they're doing. It's in Italian and says, you know, perform for Pope John Paul II. And the driver stops the bus True story. Ask her. She's right there. Stops the bus. Kicks everyone off the bus. City bus. 
turns the bus around with Monica as the only passenger and personally drives her to St. Peter's. She thought she was being kidnapped for the first few minutes, (laughs) but she gets there on time. And of course, the reason I tell that is because there's such a fascination with that role of the Pope of Rome, right? There's the Bishop of Rome, like nothing can get in the way of this. And yet the challenge we're faced if we run that concept down to the ground is it says that of our leaders, that they have nothing to do with this story of Peter. And yet for all of us, the Pope, a bishop, a church leader, every one of us in the pew, we are all simply broken sinners saved by God's grace. We are not just boneheaded, we're beastly. There's stuff that is deeply broken within us yet. Yes, this incredible power and promise has been poured into us by the gospel, and yet we are still broken. As Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way within me, and lead me in the path of everlasting. If we pray that prayer, God always answers it. And you know what the mercy is? The mercy is when we ask the Lord to show us our sins, he only shows us what we can handle. Because if he showed us the full measure of our sins, we would be absolutely undone. We are beastly. We're broken. Notice what he does in verse 23. Jesus renames Peter again. He's named him from Simon to Peter the rock, and now he gives him a new name, Satan. And hindrance, the word hindrance, you're a hindrance to me, is literally a stumbling block, a stumbling stone. So he's saying, you know, Peter, you're, you're, you're a rock, but you know, you know what type of rock you are? You're a rock that I'm going to trip over. That's the rock that you are for me today. I mean, it's an absolute condemnation of the beastliness and the brokenness that was in this, is within this man. As Martin Luther so famously said, we are both simultaneously saints and sinners at once. This is the truth, and this is how we have to see ourselves. And if we don't, we're going to be absolutely beastly to those around us. I, I remember the first Anglican prayer I think I ever heard when Monica and I became accidental Anglicans. Some of you know that story. If you don't, you can come to Gateway or uh, Foundations and hear that story. But when we became accidental Anglicans, didn't even know we were in, intending to go to an Anglican church, the first prayer we heard, right? What's the first prayer that we pray? Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. And in that moment, I was pretty much convinced. I said, this is a tradition that understands the sin that lives within a Christian heart. Peter, I'm pouring everything onto you. You're the rock. I'm building my church on you. But you're a bonehead at times. Remember that. And you're beastly at times. Remember that. Do not forget. But thanks be to God. Jesus uses this epic failure to also speak the gospel. Peter, yes, you're a bonehead. Yes, you're beastly. But you're beloved. See, verse 23 
actually contains the gospel in it. When Jesus says those words, get behind me, Satan, the gospel is right there. The good news is right there. And you want to say, seriously, how is that a good news phrase? Well, here's how it's a good news phrase. Get behind me, Satan. You see, when we read it in our English translation, it looks like a rebuke. It looks like a rejection, right? It sounds like Jesus is effectively saying, Peter, get out of here, get lost. I'm done with you. That's the way we often receive it, but that's not what it says in the Greek. You see, when you look at the Greek, you see it's an almost identical phrase to the very first word that Jesus ever spoke to Peter. Remember back in chapter four of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is walking by the sea and he sees Andrew and Simon and he says, come follow me. When you look at the Greek, it literally reads this way, come behind me. It's the position of a disciple. In chapter 16, when he says, get behind me, Satan, yes, it's got some teeth, Satan, but he's saying literally, get behind me. It's the same word. Get back following me. Get back in formation, soldier. When did you think you got to be in charge? See, it's not rejection. It's him putting Peter in his place. Peter, you're an idiot. You're broken. I love you. Get in line. The disciple's place is not correcting the teacher. The disciple's place is following. The disciple's job is to learn to obey the master, not criticize the master's decisions. Peter, get back behind me. This is not rejection. This is about reminding Peter of how he is ultimately to see himself. Not just as a bonehead, not just as beastly, but Peter, you're a beloved disciple. So do what disciples do. Follow me, watch me, learn again. See, what Peter is being shown here is that if we see ourselves rightly, if we recognize that though this incredible power has been poured into us, this promise is poured into us, that if we recognize that despite that, we are still going to be boneheaded and we're still going to be beastly, then we will fall on our knees and say, oh Lord, I still need a teacher. I still need to be a disciple. I still need to learn from you. There are no graduates of the Jesus school. There is only a student. We are always going to be learning from the master. I remember when I was in, um, Godspell prior to my conversion. It was, it was funny to be in Godspell. Um, Stephen Schwartz, Godspell, same guy who wrote Wicked um, and Prince of Egypt. To be in Godspell as a non-believer, I played John the Baptist and Judas. That'll be some other illustration down the road. Unbeliever playing John the Baptist and Judas. But there was that song in there that grabbed a hold of me, even as a non-believer. Day by day... Day by day, oh dear Lord, three things I pray to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly. Day by day, that is the posture, the position, the place of a disciple. Gets. 
behind me. And do you hear the gospel in this? Do you hear the gospel in this epic fail? That for you and I, for Simon Peter, who will fail, by the way, it's going to get even worse for him. There's many more stories of epic failure on his part. And if we're honest about our lives, there will be many more examples of our epic failures. It's going to happen. But in those moments, when we show out our beastly and boneheaded nature, we're not rejected. We're beloved. We're told to get back in line. We're called to be disciples again. You see, we so often fail to see ourselves the right way. And that's what Peter needs to learn. And that's what you and I need to learn. Isn't it true that we spend so much time trying to convince ourselves and others that we're not boneheaded and we're not beastly? I want to prove to the world, to the people around me, even to God himself, that I am right and I am good. And it comes out the worst moments in our personal relationships, doesn't it? The people who we're the closest with. I must be right and I must be good and I'm going to hold my ground. And in those moments, suddenly the Lord's gospel comes in and says, are you serious? Peter, Paul, fill in your name. You're not right all the time. You're not good all the time. Stop trying to prove that you are but your beloved. More on that next week. For now, Peter understands finally what verse 21 means. You know, this verse that he trips over and struggles, that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem, that he's going to suffer many things and be killed on the third day, be raised. See, eventually Peter will understand exactly what that means and that that is the heart of the gospel. Because as he writes, as we read just a few moments ago, in his own words, 1 Peter chapter 2, he explains this death and resurrection of the Son of God. When he says, he himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter comes to believe and to know that the death and resurrection of Jesus, which we celebrate every week at this table, is a living reminder. Remember who you are. You couldn't fix yourself. It cost God this. You still aren't fixing yourself. You are still living in the continual blessing of this death and resurrection of Jesus. As we gather around the table, it's not that we've made ourselves good enough. It's not that we're right enough. Maybe God in that moment will show us just how not right and not good we are. And then before we can even begin to protest and make excuses... Isn't it like Jesus then to put bread and wine in our mouth and say, don't even respond, just receive. Don't talk, Peter. Just receive it. You are blessed. The gospel in this epic failure, the gospel for disciples is that we are more boneheaded and more beastly than we realize, but more beloved than we could ever deserve. How does Simon become Peter? How do we? By hearing the master's voice. You're boneheaded. 
You're beastly. And I love you. So get behind me and follow. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.